welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Not mine be done. Welcome to this meeting of Sexaholics Anonymous. This is a closed meeting only conference attendees who register as sexaholics may attend. This is a topic meeting. We'll introduce a topic and there will be a lot of time for sharing. Essays Anonymous program. Many of us carry cell phones, mobile computers capable of audio and visual recording. To maximize our commitment to anonymity, we cannot allow the use of these devices for recording of anything inside this conference. This is a recorded meeting, and the recorder cannot be turned off. If you choose to share, you must speak clearly and directly to the microphone. By choosing to speak, you give consent to All Star Media to record your share. You may choose to introduce yourself by another name if you so desire. All Star Media is an outside vendor carefully selected by the conference planning committee. By terms of our contract, All Star Media may sell and distribute these auto recordings to registered conference attendees on site this weekend only. And I've asked a volunteer to read what is sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety. My name's Gary and I'm a sexaholic. Gary. What is a sexaholic and what is sexual sobriety? Uh, we can only speak for ourselves. The specialized nature of Sexaholics Anonymous can best be understood in terms of what we call the sexaholic. The sexaholic has taken himself or herself out of the whole context of what is right or wrong. He or she has lost control, no longer has the power of choice, and is not free to stop. Lust has become an addiction. Our situation is like that of the alcoholic who can no longer tolerate alcohol and must stop drinking altogether, but is hooked and cannot stop. So it is with the sexaholic or sex drunk who can no longer tolerate lust but cannot stop. Thus, for the sexaholic, any form of sex with oneself or with partners other than the spouse is progressively addictive and destructive. We also see that lust is the driving force behind our sexual acting out, and true true sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. These conclusions were forced upon us in the crucible of our experiences and recovery. We have no other options, but we have found that acceptance of these facts is the key to a happy and joyous freedom we could otherwise never know. This will and should discourage many inquirers who admit to sexual obsession or compulsion, but who simply want to control and enjoy it, much as the alcoholic would like to control and enjoy drinking. Until we had been driven to the point of despair, until we really wanted to stop but could not, we did not give ourselves to this program of recovery. Sexaholics Anonymous is for those who know they have no other option but to stop, and their own enlightened self-interest must tell them this. Thank you very much. 
The title for this meeting is Design for Living. This is a closed essay meeting with a panel. Because our common welfare comes first, here are the guidelines. The panel members will share their experience, strength, and hopes for 30 to 50, no, three to five minutes. And after the shares, the meeting will be open for asking panel questions pertaining to the designated topic. All panel members are welcome to answer or decline any question. Questions will be addressed to the panel as a whole and not directed to a specific panelist. Panel members are not experts and do not speak or represent SA as a whole. Rather, they are sharing their own experiences related to the questions being asked. All panel members are welcome to answer or decline. So let's get going. A design for a living. And so I was given the privilege of kind of leading this thing. And one of the first things I went to was the book. And uh, in the book... On page uh, 15 of the big book, it talks about that uh, this is a design for a living. And it says, uh, many times I've gone to the hospital in despair. When talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and sat on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. Then you talk about living a little farther down. We commence to make fast friends, and fellowship has grown among us, which is a wonderful thing to feel a part of, the joy of living. We really have, even under pressure and difficulty. And then over on page 28, and I'll get a couple more. Uh, William James, in his book, has made some experience, and the story above it is talking about the Oxford group. And it says, we in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first to be a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, if you prefer, a design for living that really works. And later on through those readings, what is that design for living? It's the 12 steps. It's the program. The main object of this book is to find a power grade in ourselves which will solve our problems. And even later on it says... The design for living is both good for the husband and the wife, and it uses that phrase back in the section to the family. And the design for living for me, when I got sober, I had no – I mean, I came here very, very religious. I was running Bible studies, and and I, I – man, I ran good Bible studies. And I remember in Bremerton the last two years of – of drinking and sexually acting out, I would go to a porno store on the way to the Bible study to get spiritual. <laughs> Quote, unquote. I would get spiritual. I'd go run a really good Bible study, and then I'd come back and get spiritual again on the way home. And that was not exactly a design for a living that was really working. <laughs> I was getting very suicidal. I did put loaded guns to my head four different times, uh, off safe, chambered. And, and then not till I got here. And the design for living for me was to find this power greater than myself, which was I interestingly go I go to church today, and, and, but the relationship with I had the same God I was looking for is completely different than the relationship that I have today. And, and the God that I take to my church is the God that I found in these meetings. And I guess really quickly, there was a, a priest out of Oklahoma, and he talks about, he said, uh, he showed up at a conference dressed in garb, and he said, I normally don't dress like this. I have to go to a funeral right away. So no surprise that God, as I understand him, is Christ. He said, having said that, I see a bunch of eyes glazing over out there. He said, I know some of your Jews and some of your Muslims. and some. He said, I don't care who your God is as long as you're reasonably sure it's not you. He said, but I will tell you, <laughs> but he said, I will tell you that every religion acknowledges that a man named Jesus lived. Even agnostics acknowledge that fact. And he said, so this man was teaching one day, and word was sent to him that a friend of his was dying. Could he wait? And he, he waited and went down there three days later, and they were upset because the man died. 
And he said, I have something better to show you. Come out to the cave with me where this guy was buried and wrapped up like a mummy, if you will. By whatever power the teacher had, he says, Lazarus, arise. And the dead body floated out. He said, and then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the body floated out. And then he said he did something peculiar. He turned the people in and said, unwrap him. He said, now he just floated a dead guy out of the cave. Don't you think he could have said, burial cloth be gone? He said, I think so. He said, as a recovering priest, he said, I was spiritually dead, suicidal, had attempted suicide a couple times, could not stay sober. One day in prayer, I heard a voice say, Larry, arise. And then that voice said, Larry, step forth. And he said, you know where he had me step forth? He had me step forth in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said to my fellow alcoholics, unwrap this unbelieving priest and help him to walk free. And he said, the God I found in these meetings is the God that I take to my church. And for me... I understood that, that the only hope that I have is the God in these meetings, the people, God in skin. How many times have I talked to guys, I, I can sit down and talk to you, and the answer is there, or gone to a meeting, and somebody shares something. The guy that I would, now how in the hell did he come up? And then I get immediate resentment that he could figure out the answer, and I couldn't. You know, but he does, and I hear it from the podium, there's my answer. And so the this design for living that, that works at home and works in my life and works everywhere. I've led a couple of meetings. You may have heard this. A few weeks ago or last year, my wife was talking to her sister, and in the phone she said to her sister, her sister says, Steve, there, going to a meeting, yes. Uh, does he go to a lot of meetings? Yes. Is he going to one tonight? Yes. Are you lonely? No. He stays home if I want him to. But what she said to Marguerite says, Marguerite, you need to understand something. That our householder is a very clear order of things in this house. God is first, program is second, Steve is third, and I'm fourth. But if he does it in that order, I always feel first. So the design for living for me is if I can practice this program, this design, this living program in that order, and I do it, she always feels first because I'm in a place of spiritual good goodness and good place. And I know when I'm not, when she says, have you talked to your sponsor recently? Well, why do you ask, sweetheart? Because the order is out of, is messed up. When I start focusing on her, then I get codependent and then I get very Esnani, Alinani type thing and I'm trying to fix her. That's not the right order. If I stay out of her life and do the design as created for me, which is this program, to find this power grade in myself, which is whatever you want it to be as long as you're reasonably sure it's not you, it seems to be working. And I know the design for living says the steps are it. And so thanks for letting me share. And uh, I don't know whether I said this, but I will say this. Uh, one of us up on the panel is 77 years old with 10 and 3 quarters sobriety. Another one is 66 with 24 years of sobriety. Another one of us is 60 with 11 and 3 quarters years of sobriety. So I don't know whether we're old or feeble, but that's the breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> You can be old and feeble. <laughs> my my name's Gary, and I I'm old, but I'm not feeble, and I I'm a sexaholic. Um, you know, just very simply, uh, my design for living was to have as much sex with men as I possibly could, and the way to do that is to go to places where men congregate and just have sex. Um, what that led to was when I was I was 42. I walked away from a business partnership that was failing mostly because of my character defects. And I planned to just have sex 
I, I had no income. I had no plan to get a job. <laughs> but, you know, when you're, when you're thinking like a little boy, even though I was 42, uh, my design for living just included anything that was fun. And it, unfortunately, it excluded, not by my choice, but by theirs, most of my friends, my brothers and sisters, my father. Um, I, I was pretty lonely. But I could have all the sex I wanted. But uh, there was something, you know, I was going to those places and I would see people come and go and I think, how do they leave? There's... Because I'm not done yet, you know. I've got to take one more lap and see what I can connect with. And what's replaced that is I've been given a, a new life, a completely new life. Um, and I've, in the last 24 years, been able to experience what it means to be close to another human being. You know, mostly starting here in the program, and it's it's like a ripple effect. It goes out to you know, my brothers and sisters, to uh, people at work, to friends in my church, to just friends who are friends. And uh, I get to be a part of their lives. And and one of the things that I realized is that I missed all that when I was a kid. Because at, at my age, I'm reconnecting with the people I grew up with. And I'm, I found out that they were true friends to each other. And I could have participated in that. But I, I was too afraid to. I was afraid of everyone. I was afraid of my parents, my brothers and sisters, the kids down the street. And so I just locked myself up in a world that uh, if you saw it, you'd say, well, there's a normal American kid who does sports and goes to school and you know sits down at the dinner table. And for you young people, families used to sit down at tables and eat <laughs> meals off of plates. And uh, in a dining room, yeah. Really? Yeah. But the way it happened was I had to lose everything, and then I connected with people in this program, and I did what they told me to do. I didn't like it. I didn't like being – because I'm very sensitive and tender, and uh, I'm offended easily by people like you. You say things to me that hurt my feelings. And so I would go to older people in the program and say – Hey, you know what this guy said to me? Or do you know what that guy did? And they'd look at me and say, when I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. And when I complained about not having a job, they'd say, well, what step are you on? And then they'd tell me, we suggest that you work the next step so that you can help somebody when you've recovered or when you get to the 12th step. So my my life was reoriented by these knuckleheads that are just beating it into me that my life's not my own anymore. And the purpose of my life is not for me to acquire things, but to be of service in whatever way God wants me to be of service. And that seems to be the design that works. Because the old way didn't, didn't work at all. You know, trying to grab everything I could. Um, I was not very effective as a worker. I was uh, basically, when I was 42, I was unemployable. Nobody wanted me around. And even as as I started working again, 
Um, I needed a lot of coaching. But everything I needed was available. The um, Whatever situation I was in, whether it was um, making amends or, or deepening a relationship with a brother uh, or one of my sisters or my dad, there was always somebody that could coach me through it. And it could have been somebody that's 20 years older than me or someone that's younger, but there was always somebody that had the experience that could help me to do what I needed to do to learn to love this other person, whoever it was. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just very grateful that I believe that the program has taught me what it means to love other people and to live with some degree of humility. That's it. Thanks, Gary. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm a sexaholic. And I want to say up front that I object to the fact that I've been referred to as being on the senior panel. <laughs> He's much younger than we are. <laughs> he is. He is. He is. <laughs> it's just not right. He's not even a medication. What happened? At least we don't have to change his diapers. Come yeah. Come on. So I had life figured out before I came into program. I had it all figured out. Um, I had figured out that as long as you portrayed a life to the real world that they expected you to portray, that you did an adequate job, that you had a family that you didn't, you know, abuse overtly, that you paid your bills reasonably, that they would give you a job and money and leave you alone so that you could do what you really wanted to do, which was act out. And I thought that was, that was what life was. And the pursuit of life was learning how to get more and more of the bad stuff, of the addiction. How much, how little could I do in that real world life in order to support an ever growing habit? Where was that line? Was it Four hours a day of addiction or six hours a day of addiction or eight or 10 or 12. Where was that line? And I thought I had it all figured out. I could choose jobs where I could go places and do things and be my own boss and just produce enough so that the rest of the world thought that I was all that and a slice of bread and they would give me money so that I could do what I really wanted to do. And year after year, decade after decade, I thought that was the design for living. And I thought that was the design for my life that I was perfecting. And what I didn't know was that year after year, decade after decade, what I was missing was all of those relationships, which in fact, turn out to be the only thing that's actually important in life are those real 
things. But I didn't know that because the fantasy life, the fake life, the, the life online porn, the strip clubs, the whatever, you know, the, all of that fantasy life, that was more important. The real world was only there to support the fantasy. Until that came, you know, crashing down in continuing waves of loneliness and depression when I just couldn't do enough of it any longer to stave off the loneliness and the depression. And arranging the two-day trips to act out wasn't enough, and I and I was too lonely. And then I had to arrange the three-day trip to act out. Well, now I'm lonely for three days. And then that wasn't enough, and I had to do the four-day trip to act out, and that wasn't enough. Until finally I was at the end, and I had reached that point of desperation, absolute desperation. I was, as they say in the big book and the white book, I, I had no other alternative. So I was very lucky when I came into program and my very first meeting, I was desperate because I had seen the abyss. I knew the place on Mount Baldy Road that I was going to drive off, that I would hit that rock just as we went over the, I went over the edge, the airbags would deploy, and then I would continue down the hill and the airbags would have already deployed so I would be sure to be killed by the time I hit the bottom. I had already scoped it all out. I knew it was going to work. No sweat. I could kill myself. My family would get insurance money. I was sure worth a lot more dead than I was alive. That was for darn sure. And then I came in the room, and in that first meeting, there were two sentences that we read that told me that there was a different way to live. The first one was in the caution. At the end of the caution, it says amends to family members come from a a sexually sober, changed attitude and actions on a daily basis. I thought, oh, you mean you just don't say you're sorry? (laughs) Never heard of anything like that before. You mean actually change what the way I'm doing? You mean if I change the way I'm doing it, that that actually is a way of making amends? And then at the end of the solution where – SA introduces what I think is one of the most powerful concepts that SA has that's not actually in the big book, and that is the concept of positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. When I take those two things together that I remember from my first newcomers meeting, and some of the people here in this room were in my newcomers meeting, and I remember that to this day, 12 years ago. That told me that there was another way to live. And everything since then has been about fulfilling those two sentences for me. Getting a sponsor, working the steps, finding a higher power. Ooh. Unlike these gentlemen who have, you know, know everything there is to know about organized religion. I don't know anything about organized religion, okay? But I know that I have found a higher power in this program. And I have found a higher power, and he works for me. 
he is for the sexaholic and he has changed my life. And if I work this program, those two sentences are fulfilled and my life is different. And magically, everybody around me's life is different too. Thanks, let me share. Thanks, Jim. Well, now we're going to open up for questions, and uh, you can ask the panel any. Just it's a general question to the panel, and we'll look at each other and figure out which one is going to answer it. And <laughs> and if we not, we can look out there, and there are guys, and you know who you are that are older than us. <laughs> you can just look at them and see that. So, uh, any just for curiosity, anybody with less than a year of sobriety, just so one, two, three, four, five, six. Great, good, good, good. Welcome, welcome to the old. Panel's meeting. <laughs> I was going to say something else. but uh, So we're open for questions, and uh, if you don't ask questions, one of us will just start talking again, and you don't want to hear that. So, uh, And just shout it out, and we'll repeat it. Go ahead. Um, my name is Dave. I'm a sexaholic. I, I, um, uh, my addiction was so bad I had to go to a rehab for a while, and I was stunned with the number of young people that are starting to show up. Um, with this uh, disease, and I was wondering what what would you say to younger people? Uh, because some of us have kids, some of us may have grandchildren. What are some things that you think you can say with your experience, strength, and hope that um, we should maybe share with the, the younger generation? You know, the um, people that are struggling with this disease. Um, what should their <coughs> design be? What what can help them avoid the pitfalls that you have? Yeah, the question was basically how do we get young people and our young family members into the program? Uh, there is some literature out there. We now have alatine or esetine, if you will, and connecting with esanon, you can get the appropriate literature from them on how to do that. The other one with my daughter was to find out, uh, to be quite on, open with her. She knew something was going on. I told her mom and I said, I'm going to tell Becky. And she says, really? And so Becky was probably about 22. And we went to dinner one night, and I said, I have something to tell you. I said, I'm another 12-step program. She said, what is it, Dad? And I said, Sexaholics Anonymous. And I just sat there, and she goes, well, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Not that anything had occurred in the house, but, uh, you know, and, she, and then she said, uh, a little bit, and I gave her just a little bit. She said, that's enough. That's enough. And she says, and then she just floors. She got real quiet. And she says, that helps me understand some of the things I think about and do. You know, I've, I am never so grateful as when I see newcomers in a meeting and especially when young people walk into meetings. Pop culture has basically told our, an entire generation of people, you can do whatever you want and it's okay. And you can watch as much porn as you want, anytime you want, as long as you want. And then the moment they get that first relationship and they want to stop and they realize they can't stop and they're scared to death because pop culture has lied to them, has lied completely to them. And when they are, they come in that meeting, there is such an opportunity. The essay didn't even exist when I was their age, but if I had, if it had, I probably would not have availed myself of it because I had a different design for living. I wasn't desperate. I hadn't reached that point of desperation. They at least reached that point where they're willing to come into a meeting. 
So I like to share some stories with them about the fact that I've had to make amends to my children. I have four children. And I've had to sit down face-to-face with my sons and say, you know those times that uh, sometimes I had to – I didn't show up at uh, Little League practice and throw a batting practice for your team? And I said it was because I had to work late. Well, I was actually going to a strip club. So I was making decisions not to play baseball with you and your team. Instead, I was going to act out. That's what my disease does for me. You know, sometimes for my daughters, you know, sometimes on a Saturday when you have a drill team competition and I would show up an hour late and miss your performance or your team's performance and I would say, oh, I, ha- I had to work or there was traffic. No, I was, I was acting out in some way. I had made a decision. I had made a decision to, to act, be in my disease as opposed to be with you. And that, that is the cost of my disease. And so that's the kind of thing that I like to share with young people. And you, as a young person, have an opportunity to shortstop that, to prevent that wreckage and that damage. Okay, to learn from the mistakes of others. I've had to make those amends with my children. And just as, you know, when Steve shared, when I made, when I, uh, disclosed to, to my youngest son, he immediately started connecting dots. Ah, because a year before I'd been on a trip with him and my dad, who is a crazy sexaholic. And, but I had been in program for several years. And my dad's behavior, I was no longer willing to tolerate my dad's behavior, especially in front of my son. And my dad did something with a waitress that I was unwilling to tolerate, and I called my dad on it right there. And as soon as I disclosed to my son, he connected the dots on that activity over a year before. Oh, that's why you said that to your dad when we were at that restaurant. Yeah, because now I can do the right thing when I have to occasionally. At least I know what the right thing is, even if I don't always, I'm not able to to do it. So it's, I'm so grateful for young people to come in. Uh, to the program because they have such an opportunity to avoid the wreckage. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. Any other questions? questions? Go ahead. Um, uh, how do you deal with uh, your um, your family members who know about the disease? Um, for example, uh, my uh, I'm going to go see my wife's parents. Uh, it's been about two years since I've seen them. I was pretty close to them when I kept the disease hidden from my wife and family, but now it's, it's out in the open and my wife's family knows a lot more than I'd like, I uh, would have liked them to know, but they, they know a lot of, a lot of how, what the disease did and what I did in my disease. So I'm meeting them for the first time and um, I just kind of wanted to get your take on how you dealt with family members who know about your disease. I mean, obviously you talked about your children, which, which was helpful, but I'm talking more about parents, in-laws, yeah. uh, uncles, aunts. I'll go first. Um, we have chosen to selectively disclose to some family members and not to others. Um, so the family members that we have disclosed to, I've disclosed to family members that I had to make amends to. Think people like my brothers that I had mistreated for many, many years. 
uh, and those relationships have been completely and totally transformed and rebuilt. I've subsequently uh, disclosed to my father. My mother's passed away, uh, but disclosed to my father um, uh, because I just had had reasons that I needed to do that. Um, and I've disclosed not only to all of my children, but to all of their spouses. All four of my children are married now, and I've disclosed to their spouses because they have a right to know who is in their house or who might be in their household and who might be with their children. I mean, they have a right, a right to know that. And they also have a right to know that I'm in recovery, uh, and do the research that they feel that they need to do. Um, and, uh, and in all of those, I've just answered questions. Uh, I haven't volunteered any information beyond, uh, the basics of, of being in program. Um, and have offered that uh, we can talk privately or they can talk privately with my wife if they feel more comfortable with that, um, and uh, and left it at that. And that's that's how we've, we've dealt with it. Okay. No. I- uh, almost what Jim was saying. Also, uh, the book, again, cautions before I start talking to family members that I need to run this by my sponsor. Some people have some time because – Sometimes we just well, I don't, everybody's going to know. Oh no, it, we've got to choose some of these things. I do have a couple sponsees who disclosed to the in-laws, and as a result of that, the father-in-law talked to him, and he's now in a twelve-step program. And once it started going in very quietly, as Jim talked about, very openly, but you know, cautiously. Often, in my experience, those family members said, "Wow, can I talk to you?" And it started, and it may not happen that way. But we just, we can't go, we can't go into this with expectations that they're going to say, oh, thank you for your honesty. You know, really appreciate that. They, and I've had some sponsees that say, you're not welcome in our house at the moment. There's two, there's young children around. Although that was not a problem, there is a perception, unfortunately, that all sexaholics are whatever. And so we have to like it or not, that may occur and just so be it. And now it's just going to take time of living sober so they can see that I don't live up to those pre-expectations of what a sexaholic is. Okay. Is that, okay. Questions? More? Here's one. I was talking to them. I was driving with my daughter one time and she goes, Dad, my best friend got pregnant second time. And, uh, we went to some discussion. I was driving a little sports car at that time. and had a little stopwatch in it. And I said, uh, Beck, I'd like to give you a two-minute sex education here. She said, Dad? I said, no, no, this is something different. And I said, of all the girls you know that are pregnant, and this is maybe if you have daughters, of all the girls you know that are pregnant, is that guy standing by in good faith? She said, oh, no. No, no. And of all the girls that you've known that have had sex with a regular basis with guys, is that guy standing by and how are you viewed by the other guys? And she said, what's the point? And I said, if I as a male, as a teenager, have sex with you, and I said, you know what? I'm going to try to get, and I used her, I'm going to, I'm going to have sex with that girl. I'm going to, she's, I can get her. And they get you. You know what we do? We go home and brag about you. We notched a gun belt. We're gunfighters and say, I got so-and-so. Do you go home and talk to the girls and say, do you know who I had sex with? Not normally. I said, you're known as, it's not fair. You're doing the same thing. I'm the stud and you become the opposite of that. 
you become the easy person. And the easy said, you're right, Dad. We've kind of talked about that. So what is fair on the surface, often for the girl, is not the same. I'm looked forward as a, a real guy, and they're looked forward often as somebody who's easy. And she said, she says, I really appreciate it. I've never thought about that, Dad. And that was quite a conversation to have with her. And uh, I've discovered that openness with my children, my child, is what needs to happen. Questions? Questions? Come on. Back here. Yeah, when you're triggered to lust, what do you do? Okay. Oh, not that we're so old. <laughs> well, it's not a problem anymore. Hey. Yeah. Well, I I usually call this I call the social coordinator at the rest home and get some help. Yeah. That's a good question, though. No, it is, it's a legitimate, it's a fair question, because that's why we're here. Um, you know, sometimes I let it pass by me. Sometimes I pray for the other person. Sometimes I ask God for help. Sometimes I ask another person for help. Um, I wish I could say I'd do that perfectly. I wish I could say I'd do it immediately, but I don't. But those are the things that, that I need to do. And, and with persistent, you know, pulls towards lust, I have to focus on another person. So I have to be of, you know, I'm in a cycle where I, I go to meetings. I'm in cycles where I'm available to people that I sponsor. So I've set up my week. So that I have constant contact with other sexaholics from very early in the morning to late at night. And, you know, I don't see that as an escape. I, I just see it as a design for living that works. And there's something about that constant contact with other sexaholics that deals with lust. But I'm, you know, Hey, I've been sober more than a week, right? I, I'm just beginning to see that for me, powerlessness is an admission that I'm in denial about the evidence that's in front of me. There's, there's years of evidence that I'm out of control. I'm unable to redirect lust or respond in a, in an appropriate way to whatever it is that that might turn me on. I have all this evidence and I still will deny that I'm a sexaholic or that my life's unmanageable. After after destroying all kinds of opportunities and wasting talent, so the acceptance that I am a sexaholic is, is key to even beginning to deal with lust. And, um, you know, I have to look at the truth. The truth about me is that, you know, lust will will destroy my life, just like it did before. Um, but I I think watching other sexaholics helps me more than anything else, um, because they want to do exactly what I want to do. 
And when it comes out of their mouths, I think, boy, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but, but when it's in my head, it's the smartest thing a person could do. So, Very good question. Really good question. So the title of this is a design for living. So I think there's, there's two components that work for me. The first one is prior planning. Um, I'd been in program about six months and I went to my first international and it was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And in that there was a, there was a panel meeting just like this that was staying sober on the road. And they had three road warriors up on the panel and we just asked them questions. And that was a very interest to me because I'm a road warrior a lot of times. And those people gave me tools that they used when they're on the road. Specific things that they do relative to before they walk into their hotel room, when they get into the hotel room, specific things that they did every time. And I thought, okay, well, I have to change the way I have to establish new habits. I have to have a new design for living. So I need to do those things. Okay. There were like five, six things I probably still do today and will do tomorrow when I fly to Huntsville. I will still do three of those things, I guarantee you, when I get to my hotel room in Huntsville tomorrow. Uh, so there's the prep. Um, the second thing is, as Gary said, there's the, the thing that, to me, the, there's now a natural reaction to turn away. I've been doing it long enough now. There is a natural reaction to turn away. Um, and praying for the person. Praying, and, and that took me some time to understand, what does that mean, praying for the other person? I actually pray for good things to happen to that person. I pray for that person not to be used as an object, for that person not to be abused. I pray for that person not to be taken advantage of. I pray for good things to be happen to that person. And, and that that gives me a sense of goodness somehow. Um, and then uh, I'm, I'm in a place now in, in Las Vegas. There's no other sexaholics in Las Vegas. I'm the only one. Um, <laughs> and so all I have is connection with, with these yahoos, uh, you know, on the phone and text and, and when I can, you know, get over here to, to see you all. Um, so connection to uh, – uh, to sexaholics and service work is, uh, is still very important. What a fertile field to get a new meeting started. <laughs> you know, fantastic, fantastic question. Uh, at the international last year, I had a couple sponsees and one of them came. I was really struggling. He said, I am so confused. I'm so angry. And I said, why? I'm here at an international conference of sexaholics anonymous and I'm lusting like crazy. What's going on here? I said, I'm sorry. These are our people. These are the people we act out with, for God's sakes. And he goes, what? I said, y'all, we're all in one place. <laughs> and a lot of people go to, well, a lot of people go to conference, go, oh, I'm going to be safe. Oh, whoops, wrong. So I had to come to this convention like, and I have to pray this convention safe and realize that there can be and are lust objects in this conference. It is a statement of fact. And it was pointed out to me that nowhere in the literature does it say I will never lust again. There are men in this room who know have a lot of time, and we have lusted in time. What's the difference between what I used to do when I lusted for hours 
versus everything they talked about, look left instead of right, call my sponsor, do something immediately, pray this safe place sober. But I will tell you, just if you want to back this up, that these names, to prove this story is true, that myself, Mike S., and and Charlie R., in the summer of 2008, were at Roy K.'s house. And we were up there for some business stuff. And as we were getting ready to walk into his garage, he said, wait a minute, I want to show you something. Came back out, and he pointed down the hill, and he lived in Simi. He pointed down the hill about 100 feet, and he said, do you see that little white house down there? We said, yeah. He said, there's a lady that's lived there for 35 years. See her every day. And I walked this hill for my exercise. And he was had cancer at that time and would die the next year of cancer. He says, I'm out for my walk and health. I'm coming up the hill. Roy was in his late 70s, early 80s. She was in her 70s. She said it was a summer halter dress. And he says, and I took an incredible lust hit. The founder. And he said, I need to tell you guys right away. And she said, Roy, can you talk to me for a moment? And he said, and I wanted to talk to her. And God did something for me that I could not do for myself. I was able to say, I can't stay. I have to get ready for three guys that are showing up at my house. And God brought you here. So even the founder, at the moment he's getting ready to die, but he needed to do what he needed. He turned away, told us. And so I have lusted. You know, and I know what to do, and it's different now. It's an immediate response. I used to say, well, it's a four-second bell. You know, when four seconds goes, well, give me four seconds, and holy crap, it's four-tenths of a microsecond. You know, it's that I need to, I need to make that instant left-right turn right now. I can't allow two seconds or three seconds or four seconds. Was that really a red dress she was wearing? <laughs> no, I don't need to do that. Or in my case, I've acted out with men. Wow. You know, What's he wearing? You know, whatever it is, I know right now. So I hope that helps you because, you know, a bunch of old-timers here, and we've all lusted in sobriety. Of course, you know, I recognize the three of you. I've been here in Southern Call three and a half years, and I know you've served in different capacities in, in the fellowship. So uh, it's a twofold question. Uh, who and what has helped you to... Uh, embrace service as part of the recovery process? And secondly, how do you educate, how do you teach the newcomers, those who are relatively new to the program, to to grow in this service, to be available and commit from uh, the local group to intergroup to regional and all that? So I don't know if that makes sense. So paraphrase, how does service keep me sober and how to educate people below me into service work? Well, I had a sponsor who was uh, one of those people who voluntold. And he, and first of all, at the group level, I've done everything. I think most of us have at the group level. I've done all the positions at the group level, the secretary and all that stuff. And my sponsor encouraged me to get in a group, and I said, I don't want to do that. And he said, I don't remember asking. <laughs> and quite frankly, some of us have to be like that, you know. And then, and then, and then there's a man in this room who chased me to get into to the <laughs> – I didn't know how to say no for a long time. I said no with a caveat, like, oh, I've done stuff at AA before and not now. Well, I never learned that no is a complete sentence. And so I became a delegate. Quite frankly, it was a challenge, and I loved it. But the way we do it now, the sponsees I have, we sit down and we go through the traditions, and then we go through the concepts. How many people have ever read the concepts, just out of curiosity? Okay, I suggest that you do. The steps prevent what? Suicide? The traditions prevent homicide? And the concepts prevent genocide, save essay from the groups. And and so I was encouraged to get into that stuff. 
And just recently, I concluded a Skype uh, concept study with six people. We meet every week and go through the concepts. Whew. I'm going to tell you now, if you have trouble sleeping, <laughs> pick up the concepts of AA and read them. <laughs> but you can get through them. But I, I just encourage young people to get involved because it does do what we've talked about. There are men that I see maybe twice a year, and I really enjoy, oh, my God, how are you doing, you know, talking. We've been on committees together and conventions together, and, and some of us have banged heads and then come out of that growing like crazy, you know, and just amazing stuff. And if you have trouble relating to people, sometimes when, like me, may surprise you. I'm a arrogant, egotistical power guy. I like to take control. I know that surprises you. But uh, <laughs> there's my S non counterpart, but who's also an SA. But during the convention, whoo wee, did we have some interesting <laughs> run-ins? But I'm telling you, out of that, out of that came some incredible friendships because we had to work through these struggles with each other and these power struggles, and sit back and go get a cup of coffee and sit down and say, "What the hell's going on here?" You know, and being willing to change. And, and some of the strongest friends that I have in SA have come out of that power struggle and the being able to work through my own issues, which are my issues, to get through that power struggle. So I see nothing but good about service work. And when all that, I don't want to go to me, oh, Jesus, I'm the treasure. I got to go there. I don't want to go to that meeting. Oh, I got the keys to the building. I got to go there. You know, if nothing else, it maybe takes you to a meeting when you were going to stay at home. And uh, and you can't ask your sponsees, I don't think, to do something you're not willing to do. I want you to be in the service work. Have you ever been in the service? No. Well, I'm sorry, you have no credibility. Yeah, my name is Gary, and I'm I'm a sort of a simple sexaholic. You know, there there are two. Th- well, it's true. Come on, I could complicate it, but somebody else would have to show me how to do that. But. We take a vote on that. Yeah. So there are two things. One is I was told when you say keep coming back, your next move is to somebody in the room who needs to talk to somebody. If you go talk to your friends and huddle, you're not sober. So the meeting ends. You drop the hands of the two guys around you. Your first thought is, is there somebody in this room that needs to talk for whatever reason. You know, there's something rough in their life. They lost their sobriety or they're struggling with sobriety or they're only one day sober. There's somebody you can go over and just say, hi, my name's Gary. How are you? If that isn't the foundation of your relationship to other people in the program, then talk of service is really pointless because, you know, you've missed the most important foundational truth of the program. If I'm self-centered and I need to think of other people. And then the other thing is I just I just did what I was asked to do. I was asked to be a trustee several times and I was rejected every time. And then I think the fourth or fifth time they asked me to be a trustee, somehow I slipped past the committee and I, I made it. And so I just did so I just did what they told me to do. And and I was fired from that. You know, I think they've only fired a couple of trustees and you're looking at one of them. <laughs> but I'm willing to I'm willing to do it. But here's another key, and that is 
I, I'm going to speak next for the next four weeks, but I'm not going to do it again. I'll do it once. The next time, I'm going to say, hey, there's this guy Frank or Steve or and you need to call them. And I, I, I've seen it over and over again where guys are willing to serve in service roles for years. And that's wrong. If, if there aren't people in the, whatever level it is, if it's the meeting, the inner group, the region, or another level, if there aren't people to, you know, take care of business, then let's turn the lights out and go home. But there, there's none of this bleeding, oh, I've got to serve and nobody else will do it and I guess I'll be the treasurer for another 12 years. <laughs> no, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. And so in order for people to be aware of service, the old guy needs to step down after he's done it once. And then he pushes somebody forward and lets them take take a role or whatever that is. So bring us on in. Absolutely agree with everything that's been said. I'll give you one caution. Um I was when I came into program I was brought into higher levels of service a little too soon. Um, I'd been in program for probably less than 24 months and all of a sudden I was the unity conference deputy chair and then the chair for the next unity conference. And, uh, you know, and it was, it became about ego and I was not ready. I hadn't made that mental transition that Gary just talked about that, it really is about looking for that person that needs help. And, um, and it, it was costly for me. Um, it almost cost me my sobriety. Uh, I, it, it was, it was ugly. Um, I really, my recovery, uh, really, um, got put on hold because I was focusing on doing good service work as if that was my job. And I wasn't, I wasn't ready to do higher levels of service work. I should have stayed at the group and intergroup level and stayed focused on that and focused on my recovery for a while yet. Um, and I was between sponsors and all of that and, and some other stuff. So I didn't have good guidance. Uh, so, so with your sponsees, watch that. Okay. Make sure that, you know, as you're guiding them and, and bringing them to service work and higher levels. Now the, the rewards are unending. And I feel so grateful that, that I somehow survived that, that God saw fit to get me through that. But just uh, as a caution. Just to play off, Jim, we're just about ready to close. It's normally at the higher levels, but if you're getting in a group, you might consider something called a a service sponsor who's done what you want to do. And it's really important if you're going to be a delegate or a trustee, but at an intergroup, have you been there before? Yeah. How do you navigate the intergroup and, and do that or the regional stuff? And my service sponsor's in this room, and there's a couple, three times where I've been taken behind the woodshed. 
because I can get out there and it's easier to get forgiveness than permission and start running. And I've been jerked up short and I'm so grateful for that because as Jim talked about left alone. Wow. You know, the good news is we have a bunch of sobriety up here. The bad news is we have a bunch of sobriety and I can believe my own press after a while. And that's why I need a sponsor and a service sponsor to say, you know, you are not God's gift to Sexholics Anonymous. I know that's a surprise to you, but uh, but it's not. And I need that person to jerk me up short. And we'll end with this, uh, you know, happy, joyous, and free. Why shouldn't we be? After all, you know, we've recovered. And Sponsy talked to me the other day, and he said, you know, a new guy, and he says, I was in a hot tub last night with six women, three bottles of champagne. And I assured him if he did the 12 steps, he'd never have to do that again. So. Can I just say something very briefly? <laughs> I, you know, I've I've watched our inner group, and and I, I noticed that old timers don't come back, and I think if you want younger people or newer people to take service roles, then then people who are have a little more time should come back and sit in a chair and keep their mouth shut and encourage the young people, and when when there's a group conscience. That old deal about looking at the oldest guy and asking him what he thinks is wrong. The old guy should just shut up and let these young kids talk. And if, if it's important, if it's that far off track, maybe he should say something. The young people need to lo- learn to stand on their own and make decisions. And it's, it's just important that the old people are there. But they seem to drop and just stop going to intergroup. They stop going to meetings. They stop. I, I don't understand that. But it's, it's important for, for all of us to show up and participate. And that encourages service. And, and then you can take a guy aside and say, hey, you know what? You're out of line when you did that. And, uh, you need to make amends to the group or you need to handle it differently next time. But, you know, these guys have a lot to share with. You know, I'm just a grouchy old gas bag who's been fired before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We still like you. (laughs) Yeah. No? (laughs) Amazing stuff. Uh, That's all the time we have for sharing. Sexholics Anonymous, our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help (laughs) others achieve sexual sobriety. Our experience teaches attending meetings, working the steps, and giving and receiving sponsorship are key elements in maintaining our own sobriety. This anonymous program, please keep the name and phone numbers of anyone you meet or learn about SA to yourself. And what we stay here, then stay here. And I've asked a volunteer to read the promises. Somebody gave it out to somebody. Did I not? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.